The tool is not designed for the human. The tool is designed to extract the energy from the human. Oh, wow. To create, however much it can, a surplus. Well, we're just now realizing that there are humans in organizations. Yes. How do we prioritize humans in a human-centered organization framework Yes. when we are subsumed in a paradigm of white supremacy? Ooh. Now we're getting, now we're getting real spicy now. All the things. I'm Dino Anderson, and this is how I think about belonging. A very active, active verb. Like, think about the story of the Maasai tribe. Whenever there is a, an individual that commits an infraction or goes against to the teachings of the tribe, that individual is not punished in the conceptions of how we think, you know, punishment should be dealt out or reprimanded. They're actually brought into um, the center of the tribe and the women of the tribe, the carriers, right, of the culture and the ethics and the morals and the interstitial spaces of that tribe gather round and they sing to this individual. They sing to this human being to remind them of who they are as an us, as a collective. And that's how I think of belonging, an active singing to remind us who we are as an us. Hi, Dino. Hello, Rajkumari. You teach a class at Stanford University in Palo Alto mm -hmm. called Equity by Design with mm -hmm. Adina Sterling. Yes. You were so gracious to invite me to come be a guest speaker to both classes, the 8 o'clock class and the 10 o'clock class. Mm -hmm. Sorry, and the yes, 10 o'clock class, yeah. Yep. And I had the, because I'm obnoxiously early to everything always, I had the fortuitous experience to witness you teaching the course. Oh, wow. Wow. What was that? Oh, okay. And you were <laughs> certainly in your element. It was amazing. Mm. Talk a little bit about this class. What is this class that you teach at Stanford? Yeah. Yeah. So Equity by Design was created by this wonderful co-professor that I have in the course there called, uh, it's Adina Sterling. And Adina Sterling created this class really, you know, at the Graduate School of Business to have Graduate School of Business students think through like, how can we build more equitable organizations, especially as these are young, you know, entrepreneurs, founders, some people too that join the class mm. are people that are already really well ensconced in the field. So, and they're hungry, they're thirsty to think about how to mm. make systemic change in something that has been moving glacially for a very long time. So how I met you mm -hmm. is through introduction by Vanessa Myers, who's the chief marketing officer at Articulate, where you work. Currently, yeah, yeah. As My other job. The, <laughs> <laughs> as the chief culture officer. Yes. And you shared with me long ago that you came to Articulate um, because Lucy Soros, the CEO, was quite adamant about mm -hmm. human-centered organizations yes. and that it was a critical framework yeah. 
at Articulate. Mm -hmm. And you got really excited and you wanted to help drive that framework and drive those tenants. What is human-centered organizations? So human-centered organizations are exactly what they sound like. You know, it's how do you put not only humans at the center, but humanity at the center of how you build, construct, systematize, and also think about your North Star mm. for your organization, right? Mm -hmm. We all know that what makes an organization tick and go is the human beings that are there. Right. So if you keep building systems that are agnostic mm. to that brilliance, mm -hmm. that resource that's already present, um, you'll continue having and exacerbating these sort of systemic inequalities that happen a lot in organizations like people being overworked, people feeling like they can't bring who they are mm -hmm. to, you know, in an organization, people feeling that, you know, it is us against them. Mm -hmm. So I think human organizations is really like, how do we expand the concept of us in organizations mm -hmm. and build from that place? Wow. You know, one of the things that I love that you talk about is the tectonic plates that are shifting in our consciousness. Mm. To think about radical change, we have to start with looking at the word radical and mm. its root to get at the root, nourishing the roots, supporting the roots. Where is dignity rooted in human-centered organizations? Oof, oof, oof. So many things are going off when you say that, right? And thinking about dignity. Um, one of the things that I think of human, right? Human-centered organization, I think a lot of the word culture. I think a lot of civilization, right? Mm. And creating yeah. civility, right? Coming from a place of civility. And we know that in the name of civility, mm -hmm. a lot of things have been created that are not civil. For sure. Right? Out of culture. So what I think, you know, human-centered organization and, and, you know, very close to like, re it really is all about rethinking, rethinking what is possible in the culture of an organization. That concept of dignity being square and center. I love that you said when we think about the roots. Yeah. The roots, thinking about radical, if it is about a human being, in order yeah. to get at the root and in order to enable that root to sprout, we as a collective must come around and have an idea of every individual has dignity. I think a lot about um, W.E.B. Du Bois and mm. his Souls of Black Folks. And what he was trying to create there uh, in terms of helping both, in, uh, you know, a culture that said that it was a bearer of civility, mm. actually not being civil at all. Yes. Right? By degradating a whole host of human souls mm. that when we think about, right, at the center of any culture, at the center of mm. any organization, at the center of any, right, forward path to humanity, mm -hmm. you have to see every individual in that society as having worth, as having dignity, and, co and contributing to the creative, right, collective of the whole. 
So Du Bois in The Souls of Black Folk says, what we must do as a society in order to forward together, Mm -hmm. we must come together to enshrine and protect those individual voices that are luminaries that can help us push even further than we can see Mm. for ourselves. So that's how I think about dignity is enabling and creating that space for those individual voices. That's incredible. What would you say, and I'm putting you on the spot here, Uh, what would you say to CEOs who have not even had an opportunity to reflect on this concept of dignity mm, within an organization? mm, And what could they even begin to do to start to invite the way, a new way of thinking, a new way of being, a new way of cultivating a workforce while still shipping product, shipping service. All of that. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the, I think the baseline things you need to do, and I think this is for every CEO, is first your own self-awareness. What is your dignity? Where is your dignity? And how does that show up within the organization that you are creating? I'm not just talking about respect. I'm not just talking about accountability. I'm talking about where do they see their human dignity flourishing and opening within that organization? Because if they can't answer that question for themselves, they sure hell isn't creating it for other people. So it needs to start with them individually. So as within, so without. So without, as above, so below, right? Right? So they're the catalyst. They're the... They're the turnkey. Mm-hmm. They're the alchemist in the organization. Mm-hmm. And so you get a lot of CEOs, and we we're talking about this on class on Friday, right. sort of the CEO action, CEOs taking action in order to create a better environment for everyone. Well, I put that up there deliberately because it starts with the CEO. Yeah, It starts with that person creating the space. And here's what I'd say. You may not have all the answers. You won't have all the answers. Mm-hmm. What's great about you starting is that you enable other people to come to that table mm. and share with you, mm-hmm. right? And see you and reflect, right, to you, both your own dignity, but also, right, when they can do that with you, that means that they're trusting. That means that they're, you've created a place where they can actually step in, right, mm-hmm. as themselves, mm-hmm. you know, both for you and with you. It, it's really interesting theory here you 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 talk about how to shift from individualism mm. to collective intelligence yes and i i just want to pull on the thread of individualism mm. just for a second based off of what you just said around self awareness mm. i need an individualistic lens mm-hmm. because i need to be in relationship with myself yes in order to know who i am but yes I need the collective intelligence to reflect mm-hmm. back to me yes. that which I am not yet seeing of myself. Ah, I love that. I love that. How do I build an organization that vacillates between the promotion of self and the promotion of community? which is collective intelligence. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm thinking of two, two sort of competencies that I think here, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And that's self-awareness. One of them is 
accountability. <sighs> accountability, that's the self, yeah. right? Um, and then the other one is, you know, how do you balance accountability with also an important, important competency, and that is collaboration. Yes. Right? So within the account accountability, you actually have to be honest with yourself on how you show up, how you impact right. others, right. right? And what narrative, right? You want to exist and subsist even when you're not present. 100%. That is the record. That's, that's a recognition to the yeah. self. Right? 100%. Right. Then in that space. You're, you're yeah. basically saying, who are you as a human? Who are you as a human? What are your values? Yes. Yes. And how do you want to show up in the world espousing those mm -hmm. values? Mm -hmm. That's what mm -hmm. you're saying, yes? Absolutely. Absolutely. And ensuring accountability is to pu push on that a little bit more. It's that consistency of character, mm -hmm. right? Because when you're in that space or outside of that space and not present, what lives on mm -hmm. is that impact you had on people, mm -hmm. right? That, as you said, the values, mm -hmm. that's what lives on with people, yeah. right? That's how they remember you whenever you're not present. Their memory has to be such that they connect whatever, however they conceive of you with that impact exactly. that you left with them. Exactly. And so, so absolutely, yes, your character has to be consistent. And then how do we hold that accountability in a community lens mm. within an organization, yeah. how do we really invite the collaborative elements yes. while also recognizing the individual contribution? You know, I, I, I think, you know, there was also a guest speaker with me uh, on Friday at Stanford, Roberto Rodriguez, yes, right? Yes, yes. And I love what he said, you know, he was talking about someone being interviewed and, and actually uh, the, the, the person who was doing the interview felt very frustrated with the candidate. Mm -hmm. And the candidate who was interviewing um, was a Latina, yeah. and she kept saying, we did this, we accomplished this, you know, our team. And Absolutely. he kept, the, the person who was interviewing kept saying, but, you know, she kept, she never talked about herself. Yes. What's the balance here? Mm, between the tooting your own horn and noting that, and noting sometimes too, we've done so much research, right? When certain marginalized groups toot their own horn, yeah. they actually get penalized for exactly. that. There's something called the likability penalty that comes yeah, out. Right. And we see this a lot with women yeah. when they toot their own horn. It may come off as being bombastic. Mm. It may come off as being aggressive, too agentic in mm -hmm. the moment. Whereas if men mm -hmm. did this, tooted their own horn, they're like, he's very proud mm -hmm. of his accomplishment. Mm -hmm. So I, I love this. Like, how do you balance that fine line of showing up in the yeah. way that you do authentically. But also there's this piece that I'm hearing Raj Kumari is like, and knowing that people are measuring the, the yeah. worth of who you are through a lens, not of your own making. Right. Um, how do you balance that? I think, you know, I'm just gonna be very pragmatic here. I think the way you balance it is, I think keep showing up with the we, because that's true to who you mm -hmm. are, like this Latina in this example, right? Keep mm -hmm. showing up with the mm -hmm. we. And I think also recognizing, right? And one thing that I do with all of the people that I, any reports that ever, you know, any reports that I've had, you have to be able to talk about also your impact. 
the impact mm -hmm. that you create on others. Um, be comfortable with something called humble bragging. <laughs> yeah. Humble bragging, which is really hard for some people to do, but you know, I'll give an example of a of a of an I statement, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So collaboratively, we as a team, right, we contributed into shipping this product not only on time, but we exceeded, right, mm -hmm. the the amount of people that we thought would be trailers, people who tried our product by, you know, 200%. My direct, right, what I contributed to on that team, you can still talk about what I contributed to on that team of course. was to ensure that, right, I created the code um, or I created the 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 marketing plan to reach out other to other individuals or other audiences that we weren't reaching out to before mm. right and when the team when the team agreed of, you know to that we saw it was a great idea we pushed forward so there's always room in there to claim your i, I do a little humble bragging and see yourself as a tapestry of you know something greater yeah balance balance that's the balance you it's, are balance. not you are not without the we Right. And the we is not without the you. I think a few more leaders need to hear that statement. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you are not without the we. I want to go back to, you've, it's just, there's so many incredible quotes here in, in my notes. You, you say that in individualism, when we think about human resources, and you have resources in quotes, with I, which I love, as resourcing, using, leveraging, extracting, from humans. And then you go on to say in a completely different quote, the very tools we've created are the serpent eating its own tail, mm. Euroboros. Yes. Right? Actually, when we are putting these tools in place, it's about the tools that help us recognize patterns that may be creating harm or detriment or variation in the system versus a consistency of practice. Mm. or opportunity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How are these tools extracting from humans and organizations oh. that we are not even aware of? That we're not even aware of. Yeah, because they're ubiquitous. They're yeah. everywhere. And, and what does it oh. mean when you say Euroboros, right? When you say the serpent eating its own tail. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I think of it, back to the serpent eating its own tail, it's really... How we flourish as human beings is through categorizing. It's the very, the very thing that's innate, right? And psychologists tell us about this, like this is where unconscious bias comes from or right. just how we filter the world. Right. We need categories. And something that we do really well, and I think all animals in the animal kingdom mm -hmm. do this really well, is we start recognizing certain categories mm -hmm that become incredibly good at creating efficiency and effectiveness. Mm -hmm. And when we drive for efficiency and effectiveness, we're actually wielding the tool mm -hmm. to get to the end of that goal. The tool is not designed for the human. Mm. The tool is designed to extract the energy from the human. Oh, wow. To create however much it can, a surplus, it's the capitalistic tools. 
It's not a tool of exchange or a tool of being in relationship too. It's a tool of divesting. Wow. The tool doesn't care if you die. I just, I, I want everyone to take that in. Yeah. Can you just say that again, please? Yeah. The tool does not care. It doesn't have any feelings. It's a tool. It's a tool. Just as we think about technology, oh, technology doesn't have any feelings. It's how humans use it. Well, guess what? It's a tool. Tools don't have feelings. Mm -hmm. The operators of those tools do have feelings. But we often become inframed by the very things that we wield. It has power over us. Mm. We try to become like it. Something that's really powerful about capitalism is it divests the world into a thing. Mm -hmm. Strip dynamism out of it, uncertainty mm -hmm. out of it, so it can become a controllable, repeatable thing. And it's that thing, right, that we even ourselves try to become. I mean, look, look at how many people would love to yeah, I wish I didn't have to think in the way that I do or not have to deal with like all of yeah. this uncertainty in life and it was just wrote and give me the plan and yeah. let me know where to go. Like, yeah, there's a need yeah. to find some security in that repeatable, Yeah. right? You oh, know, um, this, is, this is so heartbreaking to hear this. And what's coming up for me in this moment is the companies that I support going through layoffs and in my job in supporting workforces who have gone through layoff, what I witness is devastating mm -hmm. in terms of the human emotion, the human experience. And so many times, weeks after the actual layoff, months into mm. the actual layoff, mm. what I am asked by so many people, especially those who come to the Understanding you know, Grief at Work series, uh -huh. I'm feeling this way, how can I stop feeling this way? Mm. Mm. I miss the happy person I was. Mm -hmm. I'm yes. feeling sad, I'm feeling fear, I'm feeling anxiety, I'm feeling concern, I'm feeling anger, I'm feeling shame. How can I stop feeling that? Yes. That is what is surfacing for me as I hear yes. the, the commitment to extraction. Yes. And I think where we've arrived with so many organizations is this misunderstanding mm. of who a human is mm. or what a human is. That, that. And there's a conflation occurring. Yes. And I think where we are, when, when you say, you know, the tectonic plates of consciousness are shifting, which yeah. I love so much, I think we're at this precipice, we're at a cliff, we're about to jump off. Yes. Where we're just now realizing that there are humans in organizations. Yes, there are humans in an organization. What comes up for you when I just name all of yeah. that? Yeah, you know, especially what's happened, I think we've accelerated this, but what's happened over the past five years, what 
It took a pandemic of global proportions that threatened this thing called life. Not only threatened, devastated, ravaged this thing called life. And that it showed also that it wasn't something that was uncontrollable out there like a natural disaster, right? Mm -hmm. Which you just read an earthquake that happens. Like you mm -hmm. can't control an earthquake, mm -hmm. right? Or a hurricane. I'm working on it, but... We're working on it. We sure are. We sure, I'm sure somewhere in the Hardron Collider, they're creating some sort of physics in order to do that space-time continuum, I'm sure. But... Um, Given that we, we both uh, live in California. Right, exactly, exactly, right? We, yes, lots of waterfront property. Um, so <laughs> what we... But what we saw, right, with this pandemic was that it was something that we each bore. Yeah. We each had the ability yeah. to control right. the destiny mm -hmm. of this mutation, of this disease, dis-ease yes. in the ecosystem. Right. Each of us had that ability. And mm -hmm. what we found and what we can had to come to terms with was our own humanity of saying, oh my goodness, I am squarely put right in the center of this, of this ravaging pandemic that I actually get to, I, I can exercise control, but also the person next to me, the person next to me also has, it's a recognition, also wields that incredible power where they can be of help and support or through carelessness, not having that accountability we're talking to, talking mm -hmm, about, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they can also destroy. Yeah. So I think that reckoning of actually starting to see humanity in a very different way, um, I think start, started to help, I think, shift this tectonic place. I think technology was, again, as a tool, was really great there because we got to connect with one another. We got to see this yeah. in a way, almost like fractals. We got to see mm -hmm. this in a mathematical way. We got to see it at scale, mm -hmm. which we as humans, from our comprehension, our brain, we don't get things at scale. Mm -hmm. We don't get, you can imagine what $10 bill looks like. You can imagine what a $100 bill is like. You can imagine what a $1,000 bills, thousand ones feel like. You cannot comprehend what a billion dollar bills look like mm -hmm. in a room. Right. That's just, we don't, we don't understand order of magnitudes. That's not just how our brain thinks. This, I think what happened with this, with this pandemic and with the tools that we had, we started to understand things at scale that impact humanity um, in such a visceral way that it connected us. It connected us um, to one another. It connected us to see also, you know, the fallout from that was, what are we doing here? Mm -hmm. How are we being with each other? Mm -hmm. How are we helping? Mm -hmm. Oh, wait. All the economic we engines and wheels, they're just that. They're, mm -hmm. they're means to an end. Those mm -hmm. things are grounded to a halt. Mm -hmm. I had to care for myself and for one another in a very, very different way than perhaps what I was doing before. I had to think about how I was interacting and yeah. moving about with people in the world. And I think that's a direct translation into the world of work where people are like, oof, yes. oof have to rethink of our humanity a little bit differently. Right. So what I'm hearing you say, I'm going to put words in your mouth here. Yeah. So push back. COVID 
humanized companies. Oof. COVID humanized companies. 110%. Absolutely. Wow. And we can see that even in you know, wow. so many of the, you know, so much studies will come out of this. One of the things that I think a lot of For our sure. listeners can, can recall is when we made this you know, shift to remote work is that we got invited. Mm -hmm. Not only did we all have to do it at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. And we were all feeling what that was like, like to shift our homes, to shift in a different ways. Those with children had to shift, had to find spaces. Perhaps yeah. they didn't have a space. It was at the kitchen yeah. table or right. at the dining room table or in the garage. Or for some people that I didn't even know, they had to go into the closet of their home. Absolutely. Just to <laughs> find a space. Uh, absolutely. I have, I have seen many of those closet moments. Bandwidth yes. issues were, right, a problem yeah. where people start to think like, wow, I don't have enough bandwidth in my home. Yeah. Things that I was just taking for granted. Exactly. Like, oh my gosh, my kids can't study, right, in the way that yeah. they need to, and I need to be offline when they're online. But we also got to seize people and their home yeah. in a way and in their element that we've never seen before. Yeah. We've got to see people in humanity of having to yeah. like, oh, the children running around in the background exactly. or interruptions exactly. happening. Exactly. And we all had to be kind to one another, be graceful yeah. with one another. We all did this thing too, which I just found was so glorious. We all were checking in with one another. It's so true. Something we don't do. It's so true. Very often in the world of work, we don't check yeah. in. We don't pause and stop to say, what's happening for you? What's happening for you? Are yeah. you sick? Yeah. Are you okay? Yeah. Right? How can I help? So we have different ways of communicating via text, via email, and sometimes it's personal, sometimes it's professional. But what I love in terms of your communication style is how human you are, mm. how resonant you are, mm. how every single time, without fail, you say good morning to me. <sighs> without fail. And I'm always blown away by that mm. because it takes longer to text. It does, it does. <laughs> and yet you always check in with me as a human. Yes. And that has touched me, I just wanna share with you, that has touched me to my core. Mm. Hmm. That is antithetical. That is antithetical to using, leveraging, extracting yes. humans. Yes, yes. And I kind of want to go a very different route here. I want to I go a little non sequitur. Yes. But I want to see if I can bring it back. Yes. You said something earlier during our pre-talk. What is equity but an engine for capitalism? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is so interesting to me. Because we, you and I, have agreed that we live in a world subsumed in white supremacy. Yes. You work at a company that prioritizes human-centered organizations. Mm -hmm. How do we prioritize humans in a human-centered organization framework yes. when we are subsumed in a paradigm of white supremacy. Oof. Ooh. Ooh. Now we're getting, now we're getting real spicy now. All the things. 
that equity is an engine for continuing and perpetuating capitalism. Diversity hasn't worked. Inclusion hasn't worked. Thank you. And now we're centering around a world, a word and a world called equity, which on its surface, absolutely, that's what we want, right? Mm -hmm. Access to opportunity, equalizing the playing field so that those who have been, you know, um, handicapped, to use that word very specifically, mm -hmm. right? Not gotten the same resources in order to be on the same playing field with others. Mm -hmm. But what is the end of equity? The end of equity is still about creating these fair opportunities so that the end purpose is that people contribute to the economic engine. Mm -hmm. The object, the objects of it that you get out of it, that's great. That's awesome. You know, more um, economic power, more buying, mm -hmm. all of those things. But these are all under economic, an, an economic regime. And capitalism is all about extracting from yeah. humans as much as possible. Not only as much as possible, it is concerned with getting surplus from human beings. Not just enough, right? If we remember Marxist Capital was, where do we get to, uh, you know, the end of Marxist Capital was species, this thing called species, species being, mm -hmm. where what we do, right, we recognize and we transform into a different sense of humanity, that what I do is not, you know, who I am is not defined by what I do. Mm-hmm. That's not the definition. And so, right, this beautiful picture that Marx paints at the end, and by the way, I'm not a Marxist, I'm a Hegelian, mm -hmm. and we can get into that in a moment, but I think Marx's material dialectic was really important to understanding that these modes of production and what we are trying to achieve through the material dialectic is actually, right, creating a humanity, or, or actually removing humanity from human beings mm -hmm. to turn them into means to an end. And so, you know, equity is wonderful and it's great on the surface, but you have to ask yourself, what is the end of equity? It is not moral or ethical. Mm -hmm. It's not a moral ethical landscape. It right. is an economic landscape. This is so powerful. As you were speaking, I had to write this down. When we commoditize humans, we extract the, their dignity. Mm, yes, yes, absolutely. Extract their very, the very essence of what it means to be yeah. human, and moreover, being humane. Yeah, humane to themselves and humane to others. So, so that's an interesting. That's an interesting door. Yeah. Uh, you know, this being human and being humane. Mm. Speak, mm. speak to that. Ah, yeah. I think, you know, we, we all, we are all human. We have that. Now, whether how we want to define that, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and we've had many definitions of that throughout, right, our history on this planet. Being humane, right, is a 
there's a precondition of that. We are a collective species. So being humane is an access, an entryway to seeing that there is a we. There is a we that is striving. There is a we that is trying to understand. There is a we that is already, by presupposition, related to one another. How we steward that relatedness. Nice. How we steward that we together. That's how we be humane with one another. I love it so much. It's the movement of the power of I. Mm. Mm-hmm. To the movement of the power uh, of we. Yes. Yes. Right? Yes. That's what you're talking about. You say here being in relationship being in relationship to itself. You were you were talking about this really interesting theory of of master and slave. And the mm. way that you brought this up yeah. t- <sighs> hit me in my heart so hard. Mm. Mm. Sick, yeah. You know, it's just sharing, right? Like, not not Marxist. I, I think Marx is spectacular and amazing. And the ideas that Marx got, you know, the, the where that takes its root is from this dialectical movement from Hegel, right? A Hegel, German philosopher, really concerned in grappling with the human's desire for certainty. Mm-hmm. The human's desire for coming back to this effectiveness, efficiency, mm-hmm. productivity, right? Sense certainty that I am an I. But that's all it strives for. It's an I than an I. So what Hegel does is says, okay, well, what happens when you come into contact with other eyes that are also saying that I'm an I mm-hmm. and also have this deep innate desire for this certainty? Well, when two people are coming in contact with one another, they actually begin to war for who gets to claim that I, I, Mm -hmm. right? And so in this fierce, intense, beautiful, beautiful job that many, many philosophers have done a lot of work on in Hegel, and it's this thing called the master-slave dialectic and it's phenomenology of spirit, where you get these two eyes that are warring for sense certainty, so much to a point that they are willing to risk and stake their own lives. Wow. The very thing that makes them right human stake that for that thing that is external wow and what happens is that actually they go to war these two eyes mm-hmm. and they can be right it's a story of consciousness mm-hmm. but what happens is that one needs to it actually they don't destroy one another one subsumes the other mm-hmm. the master subsumes the other that wanted to claim the slave that it was an I, and it doesn't get to claim that it is an I. So the master believes by subsuming this other that, see, see, I was right. This other thing that was in my way, trying to do the same thing that I was trying to do, actually now needs to recognize me as being the I, being that, right? Having and claiming that and winning it. Well, Hegel then goes on to show very, very beautifully and elegantly that actually that I, which the master is holding onto, is actually empty and vacuous. The I that the slave has been trying to work towards 
actually becomes more meaningful because what it starts to see, and this is a shift that you're talking about, the I to we, the slave starts to see that the works and the fruits of its labor, which the other master consumes, actually helps it see that that master is meaningless without me. I just got goosebumps. Hmm? Wow. I just want to breathe into that, yeah. take a moment. It is so powerful. I think Loveland Nwadeyi said in her interview with me that it is from the lens of the oppressed mm. that the oppressed can see so clearly yes. the oppressor yes. who cannot see himself. Yes. What's the connection to organizations here? To organizations. You know, so when I went into articulating, you were asking this before around, you know, now doing this work in a human-centered way, people-centered way, mm -hmm. while still, you know, ascribing and being deeply within a paradigm of white supremacy, mm -hmm. is that if you, any organization that claims itself to be people first, human first, must first interrogate whose humanity are you centering? And so in that work, if we can't do that, and if they feel that that's it, their knee-jerk reaction to that, that uncomfortability to question yeah. whose humanity we're centering. But we're centering everyone's humanity, do you know? Yes. We're centering what? Everyone's humanity. That is actually a tool that catotalization, that universalization of all into one, that's enlightenment rationale. That's a tool. Yeah, speak to that, because I think that's that's something that you and I talked about in our very first conversation yes. when we very first met in, in Berkeley, and and we both scoffed at the response of, yeah. you know, well, we're we're centering everyone's humanity. How do you everyone's how do you humanity. address that when that's the response that comes towards absolutely. you? Absolutely, absolutely. Right? It's the all lives matter. Uh, correct. All lives matter. We're all the same underneath that, aren't we? Well, when you live under certain paradigms, and I'll give this example at the sun, the earth-centric view and the, the heliocentric and the mm -hmm. geocentric view. Mm -hmm. When you live under a certain paradigm, let's say the earth-centric view, which we did for Correct. millennia, <laughs> not until probably the 1700s did we start to switch to a different conception, the very language, yeah. the very prism, nice. the very tools that you use, yeah are all codified to substantiate and support that paradigm. You cannot see beyond that paradigm. Right. So when we say it's everyone's humanity, right? You're saying everyone, your definition of everyone right. is ensconced within a certain right. paradigm. Remember, the oppressor cannot see beyond. its relationship beyond itself absolutely yeah. absolutely so the everyone the mm -hmm. definition of every is actually defined and predicated on the one who is in power yeah exactly 
I want to take a different route here. I, I, I really want to get your thoughts on this. There was a question in class at, on Stanford, mm. you know, on Friday. And I think in the morning class, there was some, some debate that came up. It was such a great question. And I would love to hear your answer because you didn't give your answer. You mm. just let the class, you know, beautifully vacillate within itself. And the question was, how do you, you were talking about activism and a- advocacy. Yes, yes, yes. And, and I'd love to hear the definition, uh, the, the difference, sorry, between advocacy and act- activism. Mm-hmm. So please, mm-hmm. please do share that. What happens when you have an organization who wants to align with what's currently happening mm-hmm. in the world, mm-hmm. whether it's Black Lives Matter, yeah. Whether it's trans rights, whether it's abortion rights, yes, whatever it is, and the organization moves toward espousing whatever it is in the moment. Mm-hmm. But the internal stance does not align with the messaging that is being conveyed yes. and exposed to the public. Mm-hmm. What happens then? What do we do? What do we do? And am I hearing you say something, Rashmiya? It's like what 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 tantamount to like diversity theater? Yeah. When an organization is yes. yeah externally, right? This and is when you become so customer centric. Yeah. That that actually the outside is what dictates. <laughs> Mm-hmm. more than what's happening inside right right that it doesn't emanate from within to without exactly right it doesn't emanate i think you know what you do when there's misalignment mm-hmm. and not only misalignment but there's also just there's rupture there's a chasm there's a chasm that exists between yeah right self and other right how do you even begin to bridge that and broker that I think this now turns to our advocacy and activism. Right. Advocacy is in service to, right? Um, in this instance, we'll be in service to that place where the organization is going. We mm-hmm. want to advocate for that. We, wanna, we want to raise our voices to make it known that this particular, this issue matters. But advocacy is a kind of framework that I think still enables people to perpetuate bad actions. Activism is an agitator. Mm. Activism is never um, at its core something that is supposed to be centered in the organization because by its very nature, it has to stay, right? Being at odds with the direction of an organization. So it makes the organization uncomfortable. So this is the serpent eating its tail. Yeah. This is uh, the rupture and the repair. Yeah. This is being Mm. in relationship, right? One agitates, one breaks, one ruptures in order for something to be rebuilt. Yes. And come back into relationship with. Come back into relationship, absolutely. So activism, rupture, Right? Exactly what it sounds like, the root of it. Mm. Activate. Mm-hmm. It's to activate something, get people to see mm-hmm. in a different way. And it is supposed to make you uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. 
And so you have to welcome, welcome that. Yeah. Right. Open it so that it makes you also, because if you're uncomfortable, that's a good thing. Yeah. That's a good thing. We, uh, I have mentioned this before. I'll mention it again. The number one leadership skill that I believe is so critical, so essential, so important is sitting in In discomfort. discomfort. (sighs) Absolutely. And it is the most uncomfortable thing to do. To do. To do. It is difficult. It is hard. I'm speaking from current experience. It is challenging. It is anxiety ridden. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it is emotionally and mentally exhausting. Yes. And it is so important. So, so important. You were born in Panama. Mm. You came to the US when you were five. Your father was part of a political order. And uh, the country was in turmoil. Yes. You talk about how there was an urgent need to escape the country. Uh, uh, and for the sake of your own family's safety, talk a little bit about that. Uh, absolutely. So, um, and I had to take a deep breath as you were talking about that, Ashkemari, because there is, right, so much... One, there's just so much trauma around yeah. that experience. Um, and I, you know, anyone who can relate having to migrate to another country because where they're leaving is so destabilized and so life threatening that you actually have to come to a place, actually, and in my case, come to the US, which was known as the aggressor. Yeah. Wow. So we left Panama, you know, my family did, my mother and my three sisters. um, Mm. And my mom was already trying to set up shop here in the U.S. Mm. because the writing was on the wall. Just as more as a country tried to reign its independence Mm -hmm. from the U.S. um, and Panamanians that were in support of that, right, independence movement. And as Panama also grew in coalition with other Latin American countries in the area because so much of the history of these countries is predicated on uh, U.S. militarism and mm-hmm. um, uh, and so much of the identity is based, you know, in contradistinction to mm-hmm. U.S. military presence. So to have these companies, to have all these uh, countries galvanizing with one another um, was creating more and more and more tension. And so mm-hmm. more U.S. forces started showing up more mm. more of that writing was on the wall that you know where this is going is not going to end well or it's going to mm. end in a very violent 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 way so we moved to the US predicated on trying to find a better place to be mm-hmm. um uh as a place that um because it's going to rupture mm-hmm. it's going to actually turn into somewhere violent at least will be some place mm. right will be in proximity to the aggressors so probably we won't be right in the shadow mm. of that. And the U.S. being so large enough also at this time, I think this right. was very smart of migrants at this time. The U.S. is so large that right, what, what goes well in New York and what bodes well in, in other states, um, there are havens and other people yeah. that are just like them. So it feels like a welcoming community. So at least, you know, there was a little bit of feeling of safetyness. Um, that was present there. So 
that was our first journey into the into the U.S. I can go on and talk about how there was Mickey Mouse was involved, Disneyland was involved, but we can talk about that another time. <laughs> I, I think it's important that uh, everyone knows that Disneyland was involved and yes. Mickey Mouse was involved. How did your journey mm. as a child, mm. what you experienced in terms of trauma, uh, lack of safety, mm. Mm. fleeing for your life, yeah. right? Yeah. How did that influence how you're showing up in this work? Yeah, yeah. You know, as a child, I I didn't know. Maybe this is a Disney story. The story mm. was like we were going to Disneyland, mm. <laughs> and just going. I was so excited, so excited to go see Disney and see Mickey Mouse. So excited, and we got there, and every day I was like, "Is it today? Is it today? Is it today? Is oh, it today?" Wow. And it got delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed and finally went to go see Mickey Mouse. And by the way, everyone who's been to the Magic Kingdom knows that the magic is actually being able to sustain waiting in line so damn long to get on a ride. <laughs> that is, <laughs> that, that's the magic. That is a fact. That is certainly a fact. <laughs> that's what makes it magical. But anyways, um, uh, so having to navigate, you know, the one thing that was a, a salvation for me mm-hmm. during all of that mm-hmm. was there was this place that created um, even more safety, a home that created a place where I felt I belonged, a place where I can explore, Mm. a place where I can, you know, do the thing of learning who I am with others, is this place called school. Mm. It was school Mm -hmm. that did that. It was the stabilizing force for me. Mm. So as a kid, not knowing the backdrop in total, what was going on was, okay, while I wait for the Mickey Mouse, while I'm like in a new new place, while I wait to go back to Panama, okay, I'll do this other thing and be with, be with Mm -hmm. other kids, right? Being socialized in this way. And so that helped me to stabilize for quite a bit, quite a while while I was learning new things. It sort of made my mind, you know, focus on something different. Mm -hmm. And I think that helped with the, with the trauma to be quite, Mm -hmm. quite honest was the more that I leaned in into school, Mm -hmm. the more I was doing more healing for myself. And so I excelled a lot. Yeah, I bet. In school. I bet. I was that student. I was the person consuming information, knowledge, Mm. so much to the point that, you know, as I Mm -hmm. continued on my academic, my scholastic career, I then started in philosophy. Because why not? Mm -hmm. I want to keep consuming the the ideas. I still want to get very close to, Mm -hmm. right, understanding these paradigms that shape the world Mm -hmm. and give it meaning. Mm -hmm. I wanted to get very close to that because I was searching and looking for uh, those resources that helped me make meaning of something that seems so chaotic, traumatic, painful. And really, that's part of my identity. So much of what I adore about you, Dino, is you just being human just being you, your authenticity that you bring in every conversation, in every moment, the way that you resonate with the world around you, with others, with mm. yourself, mm. the playfulness that you always prioritize everywhere you are. I, there's mm. so much that I just enjoy and mm. admire about you. I, this conversation has been so heart-centered for me. Right. And in closing, what I would love to ask is, you and your husband yes. are 
thinking of bringing children into the world in some capacity. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, it's such a great reaction. And the question that I ask everyone in closing is around hope for the future. Mm. And for you, I'd like to ask, what is it that you hope that your children experience as they grow up in this new world that becomes wow. not only human-centered, mm. humanely-centered, mm-hmm. and heart-centered, mm. prioritizing at the core of it all, dignity. Yes. Yeah. That's so powerful. And thank you for creating a space. Mm. Or we can just step into. I say we, I mean, me talking about we, because I know there have been others also that we can step into mm. as who we are, unrestrained and exploring. Because mm. that's what we do as human beings. We yeah. keep exploring. We do. So I wouldn't want to bring kids into this world if I didn't have a core conviction in my heart, in my soul, in my spirit, in my mind, and in my body that what comes next, Mm -hmm. that these ruptures happen for a reason. Oh, yes. That this destabilization is to unearth, to reveal, to pull back the curtains. And those things that have been a dis-ease in our humanity. And with that, I think having this moment now in the world where we are opening up something that is so painful, is that we're opening up who we are as humans and as humane beings. So what my hope is for my children is that we did that work that pain and that labor so that they can continue building and bridging a world of repair and humanity with one another unlike anything we've ever seen before. I have a tear running down my face. I believe that in my heart. Yeah. That's so beautiful, Dino. Thank you. Thank you, Rashkumar. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. My heart is filled. That was Rajkumari Nayogi and Dino Anderson. Up next, Does Love Belong in the Workplace? With Karen Taylor, Chief Diversity Officer at Workday. Visit us at podcast.ibelong.com for all the ways to watch and listen to our show. You've been listening to Then, Now, and Tomorrow, an I Belong original series produced by Flowship. Today's episode was executive produced by Rajkumari Niyogi, produced by Mike Giordani, edited by Ramiro Gava, mixed by Alex Roses, original music by Dario Valderrama, production assistance by Tiari Boutet and Pili Melendez. Thank you so much for tuning in. 